The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Just over two weeks since the lives of millions across Syria and Turkey were shattered by powerful earthquakes. The number of dead is going above 50,000. The injuries and the costs of rebuilding will cast a shadow for generations. And it's all down to the most primal forces shaping our planet. Earth movements that can still lay waste to all that 21st century human ingenuity can devise. Upheavals we cannot avoid or predict. But is that true? Can we really not forecast when and where the Earth is going to move? Can science not deliver analysis or warnings? And can we not make buildings that can withstand earthquakes? Or do we have to rope some areas off and say it's just too risky to live there? After confronting climate change and pandemics, can mankind find a better way to tackle a threat that is far older and more randomly devastating? That's our subject today on The Y Curve. Brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, in 1975, Chinese seismologists predicted a massive earthquake for Haicheng, uh, three days ahead of uh, it actually struck, and then it it was a 7.3 earthquake that hit. Thousands of buildings were destroyed, but only 30 people died because they managed to evacuate the town. So So, it can be done, but the next year... They didn't predict the Tangshan earthquake, and that city was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of people died in that one. So it's 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 clearly not easy, and mm. we're going to find out more about this. It clearly isn't easy, and it clearly is something that, possibly because of the sheer scale of what we're talking about, these movements of parts of the Earth Mm. rubbing against each other that simply can't be predicted or can't yet be predicted. I think well, that's that's what we really need to well, drill all, into. All we know is that we know where the fault lines are. So mm. we know the areas which mm. are susceptible to it. That's why, I mean, we're a long way from any fault. We've got lots of micro fault lines in yeah. Britain, but yeah. we're a long way from, I think, you know, you get to the end of the Eurasian plate, which is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. That's yeah. why we are fairly safe in yeah, there. Yeah, we, we know. We, we have a sense of, of we are okay, but we also know there are places like, I mean, California, for example, mm. where they know that there is another big one coming down the line. They don't mm. know when you'd think with all the tech they have there somehow they'd managed to find a way of predicting it but apparently not and you would have thought that would be top of mind wouldn't you you would have thought there'd be a lot of researchers working on that because uh, yeah because of the potential for the huge loss of life of such a big population center in an area where you know yes the big one that they talk about is going to hit sometime well it's a balance of risks i suppose i mean they, they think or feel that actually the benefits of being there well you know it could happen today it could happen a hundred years time who mm. knows and mm. that's the point who knows but the longer you wait, I mean, that's the other thing we do know. I mean, the more tension builds up, the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. Yeah, and also, if you're living in an area like this, and this has really come up in the context of Syria and Turkey, can you build in ways that are actually more... Well, less likely to cause death when the buildings fall down or maps not even f- make them fall down. I mean, I was in I was in Fukushima in Japan a few years ago where obviously they had a massive earthquake which caused all sorts of problems, not mm. least with a nuclear power station there. But a surprisingly large number of buildings had actually withstood that yeah. earthquake because in Japan, they know where they are. Well, they know they're living in a massively dangerous earthquake yeah. area. They don't leave, but they try and make things well, slightly better. It's certainly the problem that they faced in Turkey and Syria, isn't it? It's just the quality of the building. I mean, there were codes in place, but it's sounds like they just weren't followed and yeah. uh, 
Well, uh, because a lot of the time, I mean, Japan, wealthy country, California, obviously very wealthy, but Turkey, Syria, I mean, you're talking about places where even in normal events, so the, the quality of house built might not be that great because the resources simply aren't there. And that's true of large parts of Africa as well and Asia. And I think that's another issue. You balance risks. You balance the cost of making yourself in some sort of way earthquake proof mm. against the fact, well, it may never happen. But uh, yeah, and that's all fine if we know what the risk is. So, uh, you know, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we had something like a weather forecast that says it's going to be 70% of a, you know, 70% chance of a well, great earthquake in the next year, then you'd be able to, ca- you know, at least you'd know what the risks are. But well, it would. seems like we don't even have an idea of the magnitude of the risk. If we, you know, do we know if an earthquake is due? Do we know whether it's going to be a big one or a small yeah. one? Uh, you know, to be able to sort of map numbers and, and predi- you know, some sort of prediction with some sort of percentage attached to it, I think we're a long way from even having or, that. Or are we at the point where we simply say, we're terribly pleased with ourselves being able to say what the weather will do, or what most things will happen, how we can counteract pandemics and everything else. Perhaps there's just certain areas we can't do much about. We just live on the earth. We accept the risks that come from living on this planet. Mm, yeah, well, Let's right. pursue some of this with, uh, with someone who really knows, and that's uh, Mark Allen, who's a professor at Durham University, joins us now. So, Mark, I mean, just how close are we to getting to a stage where we can predict earthquakes? Because, I mean, clearly, you know, they keep on happening and are unexpected. I mean, do we ever? Put, I mean, has there been cases where I gave the example of one where in 1975, Chinese seismologists managed to predict one. But it seems very rare that we, we, we managed to get it right. Never say never. But in my view, we're a long way from having um, meaningful predictions possible. Uh, now, that that could change overnight. There could be somebody working on something that I'm simply not aware of, and they launch it on the world tomorrow and immediately prove that it, that it works. In other words, they, they start predicting earthquakes in a, in a meaningful way, in a consistent way, in a way that's useful. But nobody's done that so far. So I'm extremely skeptical about people who say, oh, you know, there is this technique out there or there is this approach, because you can ask the simple question of if it's so good, why haven't they made it work? Why are examples mm. where they can go, look, here we told you uh, with 48 hours to go or whatever, that there'd be an earthquake in this area of this magnitude um, and, it, and it's happened. And we can do this repeatedly. We can demonstrate it wasn't a fluke. We didn't get lucky. We, we have really done this that uh, it, it is useful. And that, that's the difference between a prediction and a forecast. We, we can forecast earthquakes but not in a way that society is going to find it very useful in terms of... So, so just sort of saying in, I don't know, the on San Andreas Fault, there's going to be one in the next 30 years, we know that kind of thing. It, that's that's the difference. It's a bit... The weather's a good uh, analogue that you, you can say, I, I, I can predict by August it's going to be warm, there's going to be sunshine, and there's going to be some rain. Uh, and I can probably do that with reasonable confidence within certain bounds of what the temperature is going to be and how much rain is going to be in a typical year. Um, and, and it would take a fluke year for me to be wrong, but that's not a prediction. What I can't tell you from this distance is that on the 16th of August, the day someone in your family is planning planning their wedding, perhaps, you are guaranteed sunshine in the, the city mm. of London. Mm. Uh, we, we don't have that level of ability for the for the weather 
we don't have it for lots of things in nature. And well, we I know. Certainly don't have it for earthquakes. Yeah, predicting a you know a, a, a wedding in London, you you know the, the sun's not going to be there. I mean that that's almost guaranteed. But uh, we we do know with, um, with with faults, obviously with fault lines, we know where these things are going to happen. And presumably as well, there's behavior of particular fault lines that we know that the intensity is going to be greater than, mm-hmm. than elsewhere. Like we've got, like, I think we've got very yep. sort of micro fault lines spreading across Britain, but no big ones. So we know that's why we only get small earthquakes here. It, it, exactly. Um, but remember, the key thing about the prediction is being able to give the, 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 the timing. And what we don't know with these active faults is exactly when they're going to fail and slip. And it's that which is releasing the energy we, we know is an earthquake. Um, we're still missing anything that can do that. And a, a key thing here is is that earthquakes are typically uh, starting; they're nucleating miles below the the, the, the surface, way beyond the, the limits of what we can sensibly get to using a drill or any, anything with how, where we can get a probe down to the actual area of the fault where the, the, the earthquake nucleates in the jargon, and all the energy is is is, is radiating out from that. And the actual slip the rupture along the fault is, is radiating out from that deep point and, and if that's i think the case in the recent turkey earthquake it was it was around 11 miles 18 kilometers below the surface we can't reach that and see it uh, and so it's it's really hard to, to to be able to detect any any precursor changes on that that fault zone that, that might be going oh we, we are very close to having um a, a big earthquake here even if we could it's not entirely clear what we'd see what we'd look for and you can imagine that if you if you if you create a fault by putting your hands together you can press your hands across them so you're not just pushing them together but you're trying to push along them and you can feel the stress you're applying build up and build up and build up. And at some point, you're going to overcome the friction and boom, your hands are going to slip apart. If I'm watching you, I've got no idea how that stress is building up and at what point you're going to see slip. And if, if, if I can't do that looking at you across the room and looking at your hands, how do we do this on this fault? But, but presumably, if you if you had some sort of probe in between my hands, you'd be able to tell you know the heat or the tension, and because mm-hmm. uh, this is all about the build up of tension, isn't it? And 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 how stress, much te- yeah, yeah, they, yeah, and and therefore, well, well, should we should we back? I mean, we're, we're leaping quite far ahead in science. I mean, that's absolute basics for for the layman. What all this is? It's the plates that lie on the Earth's surface pushing each other together rubbing against each other which is just what happens it's the way the earth is this is what we're talking about it's essentially yes but uh a complication in that is that the 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 faults aren't just on the plate boundaries the faults run right through the 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 continents and and some of them can be active for millions of years. Some of them can be reactivated millions, if not billions of years after they form. So you can look at a map of the topography of the British Isles. One of the things that that, that slams out at you is, is the, the line that we call the Great Glen Fault running sort of northeast, southwest across northern Scotland, down from, from Inverness, taking in places like Loch Ness. And now that's a geographical feature. You can see the, the, the lakes lined up along it, the valley along it, and so on. But that fault is hundreds of millions of years old and would have formed at a time when the, the British Isles looked much like the, the, the Himalayas or the Tibetan Plateau. Now, it, it, it's not very active now, thankfully, at all. 
But the point is that the, the, the weakness has been preserved in the continents long after the, the original plate collision that happened um, in 400 million years ago. Well, so these are, because I was going to ask that question, so that was an old plate, a join between two old plates, which have sort of come together then? Is it? Essentially, yes. But what this means is that the, the, the detonation on the faults isn't just confined to a few faults bang on plate boundaries. Uh, it, it, it extends within the continent. So you, again, we can go back to mm. the recent example in Turkey. Now, that actual earthquake was on, on, a, on a big fault that's acting pretty much as a plate boundary. But you can go hundreds of kilometers north of that boundary and find other big faults in Turkey and Iran and the Caucasus and so on in adjacent countries. And that vast area, a couple of million square kilometers, it is all riddled with with faults that are active, that are moving, and, and collectively they're, they're they're helping absorb the the Arabian plate as it bulldozes northwards into the Eurasian continent. And all of this is happening mm. at sort of millimeters a year, which doesn't sound much in human terms. But if you if you sort of effectively doing this once every few centuries on on a fault that slips. Uh, with a big earthquake, with a with a movement on the fault or of a meter of a couple of meters, that's when the the energy is released and the damage occurs. So, you, you but, but it's it, not random, is it? It is something that is caused. Is it not possible scientifically to analyse the cause to know when whatever the the power was that was expand that, that, that was expelled in in this earthquake, where that originated, and perhaps trace it? I'm surely science has the power to do um, that. Only within limits, and it comes back to this point about we can successfully forecast where earthquakes are going to occur, and we've got a very good record instrumentally in the in the so-called historical record and looking back through the geological records. So we can work on that. But again, you, you, to, to have predictive power, it's not enough to say, ah, we suspect a 50% chance that this earth, that, that this fault's going to move, that there's going to be an earthquake in the next 100 years or 200 years. You need to know it much more precisely than that. And that's what we don't have. And it's, it's not how the faults seem to behave. They're too complicated. They don't go like clockwork. So it's not like, uh-huh, we had an earthquake on this day. That means we'll wait exactly 250 years on this particular fault before the stress is built up again, and then it goes. The, the, the faults are not acting like um, pieces of concrete in a laboratory or steel bars in a lab that you're, you're, you're subjecting to the same stresses, and they behave in the same way time and time again. They're not mechanical parts in a car. The networks are so complicated and so many variables as they the faults interact with each other that you're, you're seeing on the broadest scale these patterns and we, we know where the, the dangerous zones are. But what you're not having is a simple system where you, you can predict after one event's happened, the clock's been reset, we're safe for another 500 years and then we're in trouble again. It just doesn't work like that. Because the it may not have fully released its tension, there might be some more that's still there waiting to to strike again. Presumably, is what you what you're saying. In in part, yes, but but there, you know the, the 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 stresses are building up and the faults are interacting with each other, so that the energy release in one earthquake is going to have released some stress, which will have built up the the, the stress on neighbouring faults. So the whole system has been changed and reset. 
and there are now some faults out there which, which may in fact be uh, accelerated in, in in the timing when they're going to mature. So when you look at Turkey, I mean, I mean, there's a whole load. I mean, Turkey is multiple fault lines, isn't it? I mean, it's, it looks like it's sitting yeah. on its own plate, which is buffered by the Eurasian plate that you talked about, and the Arabian plates, and then we've got the African plates. And from so, but from what you're saying, it doesn't actually have to be on the fault line itself where major uh, catastrophes can occur it can be it can be within or within those within those areas so i'm still trying to figure out why that would be because i mean my understanding which is very rudimentary was it was always going to be on the fault line but i also understand that the the plates get pushed below one another as well so presumably that has an impact on on where the tension builds up i think the way to look at it is there are far more faults than you might realize looking at the 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 the, the crude overall maps of the plate boundaries. So that, yep, there are a couple of, of really big faults running through Turkey, That one of which which ruptured recently. And then on the north side of the country, there's something called the North Anatolian Fault. And those two, the East Anatolian and North Anatolian Fault, are by far the, the, the longest and perhaps the most um, threatening. Right. So on that, the length of the fault line has an impact on the size, potential size of the earthquake, does it? Yes, the, the the length of the fault matters, and and the the, um, the 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 rate of deformation, the rate, if you like, at which the stress is building up. So that this is why we talk about some faults being active and some being inactive, and some faults being more active than others. And what that's meaning is that regionally, that there's more perhaps plate movement happening in the area, and that is building up the stress more rapidly than it would on, on a on a, another area. Now, you talked about this as being highly complicated. What you what you've said so far, Mike, is that you know the, these things are very hard to predict because we don't know. Are you saying it is impossible to know, or is it? simply the fact that we so far haven't got to the point where we can. And I, I, I bring in something like computer modelling at this point. We've, we've heard a lot about how new computing can take into account so many variables put together, so much data. Are we moving to a point that you can see, even in the distant future, where we would be able to have the kind of certainty about timing and scale and location of these things? I'm hopeful, but I, I think um, the, the scale of the problem is we, we never be able to do it just by modeling sort of the stresses and where the faults are. There are too many variations in that critical zone deep below the surface on what's actually happening in the regions of the crust where the earthquake's going to nucleate. What would be lovely if there was some sort of precursor change that gave us a, a cast iron warning, the earthquake is about to come in hours or, or, or days. E- even minutes would make a difference. If you if you realize with minutes to go, uh-oh, something's changed in, in the world, we're about to see a major earthquake right in this. And we don't get foreshocks. If it was now, even, even the beginning, it, well, the problem with the foreshocks is, is that how do you differentiate between a foreshock, in other words, something that, does happen shortly before a major earthquake and in some way may trigger it and 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 the kind of background earthquakes that are happening all the time in these regions you can't evacuate a city like uh, istanbul or tehran every time there's a modest earthquake in the area the people would never live there and and, and if you tried it they, they'd rapidly realize well it didn't happen this time so and you don't credit these morning. stories of birds <laughs> flying away bees departing all these kind of semi-folklore things i don't give it much credit i mean it, they're interesting but it, again nobody's been able to do this systematically 
So four shocks doesn't look like it's 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 feasible, and, and we do get instances where there seem to be big earthquakes, and there's no force shock in the area beforehand. So that if they happen, how do you tell them from the background earthquakes? And if they don't happen, then obviously they're they're, they're no use in that particular case. There may be other subtle changes in 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 the the the, the, the pattern of strain around some of these faults, and in rare cases. It's been noted that that when people have gone back through the records in, 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 in faults and places that have been well monitored and well observed, there are curious things happening in the kind of the overall incremental record of how the area is forming. But that, that changes just before you get to the, the, the major slip event. It's as if going back to your hands being pressed together again, you just started to move them before bang, you slipped them past each other. But again, it's it that we're just getting whiffs of something here. It's not clear whether this is going to be consistent across all faults. It's not clear you know, exactly what's going on in a mechanical mm. sense. So I, I I would never say it's, it's impossible we're going to have a, a, a process, a system where we can predict earthquakes. But at the moment, I, I don't see what that um, that kind of magic right. gun is. It's not clear to me what would be the, uh, the observation we'd make. So I guess the question then becomes, which we'll explore after the break, how, how do we live with it? If we can't predict it, uh, is there a way that we can at least live with this, uh, with this uncertainty? Uh, we'll, uh, we'll explore that in just a second. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Now, if you want to make sure your money is put to good use, give it to the good people at Wigmore Associates. They know about money and how to make it grow. How to coach a football team or train a fighter pilot or build a sustainable housing project, they wouldn't have a clue. But with money, well, that is them through and through. They really do like watching money grow and it's springtime so you know this is actually the best time to plant the seeds in time for a flourishing summer you do know this thing about money growing is an analogy i mean they're not actually planting money to make it grow yeah 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 of course so they can make money grow any time of the year i mean even winter what really even if there's a heavy frost Get in touch with Wigmore Associates, look them up on the web. And sow the seeds for a prosperous life ahead. I like that. Yes, thank you. Wigmore Associates, they sponsor the Y-Curve. Now, where shall I put this bag of manure? Oh, I don't need that anymore. The Y-Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. We are talking to Mark Allen. He's the Professor of Earth Sciences at uh, the University of Durham. We're talking about earthquakes, obviously, given the uh, the circumstances in, in Turkey and Syria. And the somewhat... Uh, depressing conclusion that actually we probably are not going to be able to predict earthquakes in a way that is useful if i'm if i'm hearing you right mark um then the question is i suppose do you say in certain places where you know that within a certain time there's a high probability of an earthquake people just shouldn't live there i think that's unrealistic and one aspect of this which is not normally appreciated is how if you if you keep moving these faults thousands of times over millions of years and you keep adding these little increments of slip what you're doing is creating the very earth we live on you're creating the mountains you're throwing up the mountains you're subsiding the basins so it's no accident that many of the world's great cities i've already mentioned istanbul and tehran lie in in, in earthquake prone areas where the, the the action of these faults over millennia has actually shaped the landscape and made it fit for humans to, to to live in. So I think it's just unrealistic on a global scale to say these are earthquake-prone areas, 
don't live there. So that, that's really interesting. Up. You're saying that actually earthquakes make these places attractive to live in, in historical terms. Yes, yes, I am. And, and, and it's, it's underappreciated because it's so abstract. As, as human beings, we live a, a few decades and, and then we're gone. These faults are active for millions of years. So most of us live right next to them and we, we never know they're there. And we, you know, we're, we're the lucky ones. We're living in the, the, the centuries, the millennia between the earthquakes. And if you're living in one of these uh, cities, population centers near a fault, you, you, you live your daily life and you don't need to, 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 to worry about it. So you, you can't realistically say to the entire population of, of Japan or, or much of Indonesia or, or Turkey or Iran, you're, you're living in a country, you're living in a region that's earthquake prone, you, 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 you need to get out, you need to go somewhere else. They're in those places within those countries, precisely because the earthquakes have shaped the landscape over a second so you can, millennia. You, but you can prepare for it, though. So, I mean, because yeah. in, in Turkey, we know, I mean, they had the big earthquake in 1999, they had one in 2011, and now one in 2023. I mean, back in 2011, Erdogan was there saying, when it comes to buildings, if they're not being made earthquake-proof, then the builders, you know, that, that amounts to negligence, that amounts to murder. Uh, and clearly... Lots of them were not earthquake proof, and I mean that, that is the answer, isn't it? If you're in these in these areas, I mean, if it's a poor country, there needs to be support. There needs to be some way where we can build. But it's, I mean, that we we've learned enough, haven't we, to know you know how to build buildings that are not going to collapse like a pile of cards. Well, I imagine it depends on the size of the earthquake, apart from anything else. You're you're, you're quite right. We, we we have the engineering, we have the technologies to make buildings earthquake resistant. I I, I think talking about them as though they're Earthquake proof is is um, uh, uh, perhaps going a bit too far, but, but yes, of mm. course, there, there are ways of, of of building in earthquake prone areas so that if if you if you do have a, a major earthquake strike during the, the the lifetime of that building, it will withstand the shock much better than it would do if no such um, engineering uh, structures were, were, were put in place. And, and then it, it does come down to each country and to each district, sort of how much does it insist on this? How much can it afford to insist on this? Um, and, 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 and how does it check up? It, it's one thing to have the, the, the building codes in, in, in theory on, on, in your legislation, um, but obviously, if, if, if people are ignoring them, turning a blind eye to them or worse, then um, you, you haven't got anywhere. And so, that would tend to be the case in poorer areas anyway, I suppose, simply because the money isn't there necessarily to do that. Um, that that's, goes beyond my expertise, but I, I guess you're right. But I mean, that was sort of the point I was leading to. I mean, we should be putting money into these areas, shouldn't we? I mean, if we, we, we come in with disaster relief to try and, you know, rescue people from collapsed buildings, buildings made out of concrete, which is just not a pliable material at all. I mean, you wonder whether, you know, the, the choice of building materials is all wrong. But we come in and help after the event rather than actually coming in early to some of the poorer parts of the world and saying, well, let's help you support you in, in building um, buildings that are going to be not earthquake-proof, but are going to really, really, really have less of a loss of life, I guess. Because if we look at the magnitude of the earthquake and then look at the death toll, I mean, there's not a great correlation between the two, is there, apart from you know when you start to look at factors like the wealth of the country involved? But I think we're getting into an area here of how practically do you do that? How do you set aside budgets mm. in the, uh, the richer countries of the world to, to, to transfer across to poorer countries and say this, this is earmarked to, to to make your structures more earthquake resilient. Uh, you know, amongst all the other calls on aid for development, 
relief. How how do you mark out extra money for building projects? Who 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 gets to allocate this? Who gets to decide it? Well, maybe in a sense that comes down to people like yourself, Mark, because in a way, if you could say, talk about a certain area, let's say, notionally, I don't know, in Kenya, in Africa, along the Rift Valley, and you said, look, there is a 70% chance within the next 15 years that there will be a magnitude 7 or 8 earthquake in this area which will likely if we do the modeling cause this number of casualties mm. and you sort of put a, you know, a red mark on the map and say therefore with this data we know the kind of money we need to put in to try and either move people out or produce the right sort of buildings. I mean, yeah. that would be feasible. Like a, like a hazard map. So we, we, we're ensuring that countries that are high risk are at least getting more prepared for it. Such maps, such efforts exist. There's a lot of scientific research goes into looking globally at where earthquakes occur and understanding the fault systems that they're occurring on. I think what you, you have hit is that... Scientists, academic scientists, are not always the best placed or the best trained to, to get that information across to governments who are not always the best trained or the best place to, to receive the information and understand it. Um, but, you know, th- th- this is a really difficult problem to, to, to grapple because you, you're, you're dealing with questions that go into a country's independence. It, it's not for me to step into a country of the world and to start dictating to them how they they, they allocate their budgets, how they, they, they use the information. That's not to say that we shouldn't do the research, but it's, it's a very thorny problem, I think. But there is a parallel maybe with pandemic prediction that went on, obviously, in a very different area of science, where there certainly were predictions of probability. And you could argue, of course, that it's easier perhaps to predict those kind of things than earthquakes. But just for example, would you, I don't know, a few months ago, have been able to look at that area in southern Turkey, northern Syria, and say to governments on either side of the border, this is the kind of percentage chance, the scale of earthquake we could be looking at, the scale of, of human loss that we could be looking at within a certain time period. Would, would you be able to produce usable data in that way? There are many excellent geophysicists within Turkey who've already done just that, so that Turkey has seismic hazard maps. And when we look back at them, the recent earthquake doesn't come as a surprise in that sense. It was falling within one of the areas that the, 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 the Turkish scientists had long shown was a threat, was, was a danger. And Turkey does have building codes. So, you know, again, we're, 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 we're not really perhaps dealing with the nub of the problem, which is are those codes enforced? Uh, are, are they checked? What's going on in these areas to make sure that all of this knowledge is used and applied? So you said that um, if you've had a big one, does you know that doesn't mean you're not going to get another one in a, a, a couple of weeks' time. I mean, we are seeing obviously uh, more earthquakes happening in Syria and Turkey, but you know it could happen again next year or in, in five years' time. So I was looking at there's a bit of research from the University of Texas I was reading about uh, the other day, uh, and they were looking at rocks on a fault line in New Zealand and how quickly they heal and how easily they slipped. So they reckon if they heal slowly they're going to slip more easily uh, and build up less tension. So the pliability of the of the rock itself could be part of the... I mean, this is just another factor, isn't it? I mean, your point. I mean, it just yep. adds to your point. So it's another factor. Mm. And, and, and the, the key thing is that you can do experiments on these materials, these rocks in the lab, and observe how they behave. 
a big problem is knowing what's actually down there in the, the, the this crucial zone of the fault many kilometers many miles below the surface and it's going to be across a huge area and very complex and very variable uh, different from place to place so yeah we, we need more studies about how faults behave during and after earthquakes but what we do with that information again it's it's not so easy that this isn't going to be a, a, a magic pill pill to help us solve the problem of predicting earthquakes because even if we've got this extra knowledge from laboratory experiments and observations applying it to zones deep within the earth that's a very complicated very variable um it, it, it's a much harder challenge so when we in the situation where not only do we feel like that you know the idea that, that of being able to predict earthquakes is a is a long way off it sounds like we're also at the position where we're actually not quite sure even how we do it i agreed i i don't know what it's the, the the frontier out there that is, is going to allow earthquake prediction to become a science. Mm. That, that's, you're saying earthquake prediction is not a science now, even in terms of, uh, of the limited well, terms. We don't do it. This keeps coming back to the point that I don't know of any meaningful, robust way that we can use to predict earthquakes. That's why it doesn't happen. And that's not to say people aren't doing huge amounts of very useful and important research into how earthquakes occur, what, what's going on down there, just that we are not yet at a stage where we can go, aha, we're actually working on something where we can say, if not now, then within a few years, we'll have got to the point where we can come to you, the public, the governments and communities and say, we, we're doing something useful here with predictive power. I keep using that phrase that, that uh, until we're at that point where we can come back to you and say, we, we've done some observations, we, we can say with high confidence that there's going to be an earthquake in this area, you know, in this time range that you can use and act on. And remember, even if let's say there's a, there's a revolution, let's say there's a breakthrough tomorrow, it's highly unlikely that it'll lead to black and white answers where I can come back and say, with this new technique, I can confidently say there's going to be an earthquake in this area next Thursday, magnitude seven, get people out. You've got a few days before, uh, before the big one strikes. It's going to be a probability. Mm. It's going to be refining the risk. It's going to be saying, we think there's a 50% probability there's going to be an earthquake in the range of 6.5 to 7.2 in this area in this time frame of the next two months. Well, that would be fantastic, now, though, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, that, I mean, well, that, it would be better than what we have now. But you can see how this is a this is a grayscale. Hmm. This is a sliding thing between having something that that, that is, is is like a prophecy and absolutely nails you know the, the the time to the minute and the location to a to a uh, sort of a you know a very narrow range to something that's little more than the forecasting that we have now. So you know where do you sit on that scale? For me to say there's going to be an earthquake in eastern Turkey in the next 500 years, magnitude seven, is useless as a prediction. It's just forecasting that the. the, the but is there something fact. between those two extremes, as you say, being able to just predict it within minutes and being able to predict it within 500 years? I mean, just for example, are there parts of the world that right now you, Mark Allen, would not build a house on the basis that you think within, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be a very big earthquake? No, there is nowhere in the world like that. So uh, 
are there any trends that we're seeing? I'm trying a final question, or is this is this an area where I mean, it's going on forever? Are we seeing less earthquakes over this century than we have uh, in in previous centuries? Does and does that tell us that you know perhaps there'll be more in in the future? Are we getting bigger earthquakes, or are we just? A, it's very hard to tell because obviously the planet's been around for a very long time, and this has been happening long before we've been here. But I mean, is there are there, are there any trends we're seeing at all? I know of no trends that are meaningful on the human time frame. Mm. That I, I think the level of earthquakes that we're seeing now is pretty much the same as it would have been 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or a million years ago. These tectonic plates are, are pushing against each other. They're moving around the planet at such slow and continuous rates over such enormous areas that, that it, it actually makes you feel very humble as a human being that you're lucky enough to be part of it, part of the earth for a few decades. And that's that's our time slot. Mm. And that's very small in, in the, the, the time scale. Of these so we have to say, effectively, there is a certain thing that will kill people on a fairly regular basis over which we really have no power and no knowledge uh, before that it will uh, happen. Apart from building better, well, obviously. Building yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, mitigating, mitigating action. We, we, yeah. we can mitigate it. Yeah. We can... We can prepare, we can make our, our buildings, our infrastructure as robust as we can afford, as we can justify take, taking in all of those complications about, you know, budgets and independence and mm. difficult decisions to make, spend finite amounts of money on, on many competing things. Um, but yeah, that that's it. And, and all the supporting infrastructure, you know, are, are, are we going to be re resilient in the sense of, hey, if we've only got so much money to go around, can we at least make sure our hospitals are going to be able to withstand the big shocks, even if maybe we, we're not able to afford to, you know, make our town halls to the same. Sure. So it becomes a socio it's a socioeconomic question. I mean, so what you're saying is science can't, Absolutely. you know, we can't really do too much in yeah. terms of prediction. It's a socioeconomic question. But look, Mark, I'll, I'll take the one solace I'll take from all of this is the fact that here's a trend that you're actually saying is not getting worse. Everything else on the planet is getting worse. <laughs> we just don't but, know is the truth of it <laughs> by the sound of it. Mark, no, it's no, one's ever, no one's ever put that to me before, so I'll go away and think about it and see if I have a refined answer for you. But, yeah. but no, I, I honestly don't believe that that, that, that we're, we're sitting in a trend, either for better or for worse, mm, that, okay. that we are it just riding is. on this and we might as well enjoy it. Just it just is. There we are. Acts of God, or the closest thing to them. Mark, thank you very much indeed for being with us uh, yeah. today talking about, well, things that science can't do. But thank you. <laughs> Good to talk, Mark. Thank you. Bye now. So, yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? It was. That, it mm. was. Uh, not uh, not nothing particularly uh, optimistic in it. I mean, you know, the sense that science does not know and in, probably is unlikely to know. Right. This is a crap segue. I do apologise for it. What we do know is that, <laughs> <laughs> that the Hong Kong border Ooh. has uh, reopened. So there are people now travelling between the Chinese mainland and Hong Kong. But yeah. the question is, what shape is Hong Kong going to be in? Uh, and, you know, is it going to get back to its former glory days? I mean, we should, you know, Hong Kong, obviously a major player in international economics uh, and finance, where it it led in many, many ways uh, and some of the cutting edges of the ways that finance has developed. But it has been going through a big political and, of course, um, pandemic crisis. Mm. Um, those two linked to some extent, and it's now emerging from that. So we're going to try and get a sense of where Hong Kong is 
in terms of returning to its former prominence. Yeah, well, I've been reading stuff about, you know, maybe it'll become a centre for crypto, which I would have thought would be the death knell for Hong Kong. But, you know, uh, we'll, we we'll find out. That. But, I mean, it, well, you'd think it would be a risky place to do business, wouldn't you? I it, think given? there would be people who would be concerned. It was, of course, previously thought of as a sort of gateway to to China. Um, now, of course... Without actually being in China. Without so actually this, being in China. Now, mm. that has changed to some extent. Uh, and, of course, a lot of the most talented people from Hong Kong, so we're told, have, have left. left. Yep. And many of them, of course, have washed up on our shores. So we'll explore all that and the future of Hong Kong, the importance of it in the global economy, and what it also tells us about the political direction in China. That's yep. all coming up next week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. We'll see you then. The Y Curve.